seat. Man, isn't it wild to think, though, that uh, this is the first Sunday of this decade? I don't know. Some of you guys might feel like it's just another Sunday. But I'm telling you, something feels different this time. You know, the sun is starting to get longer during the day. The light is spreading out. It may not feel like it yet. It may feel extra dark. But God is up to something. Right? He's up to something. And I, I need some folks to believe that with me. Will you? Yeah. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year. And one of the best ways I know to kick off the new year, as in the midst of all of our goal setting and resolutions and all of that, is to start a new series called Made for Mission. Someone said, why didn't you call it 2020 Vision? Like, because I'm not that clever. <laughs> I didn't think of it in time, so Made for Mission is what it is, all right? That's what it is. But basically, this whole series is talking about what is it that our Creator, our Lord, what is His dream, His vision for us as those who follow Him? If we're growing and realizing that Following Jesus is our central identity. Then what responsibility, mission come with that? Or if words like responsibility and mission make some of you free spirits squirm, what is the grand adventure that God's called us to, right? What is the sweeping narrative that we're called to follow together? So all of that said... I believe that God, is, that God has placed us living north of Boston in 2020 for a reason, don't you? And with that said, today we're talking about what is that big mission that God has called us to. Next week we're talking about what does it mean that God empowers us for it. Week three we're talking about what is our, each of us have a unique design within that. How do we discover that? That's when we get especially practical in the, in the, the last week of the series. It's talking about we all have a unique place or context where he's placed us. And how are we meant to follow him there as well. So that's the big picture. Uh, But today we're mainly looking at what is that mission? What is that dream? What is that vision that God has called us to be a part of as his people together? But before I just jump into that, I want you to think for a second. Just brainstorm in your own mind. What are the best speeches you know about from the last 200 years or so? The best speeches. I'm not talking about like the most flowery, impressive language. I'm talking about what are those speeches that have shifted cultures, that have changed nations. And as I brainstormed that question this week, I thought, you know, first thing I think of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. We're on this bloodied field in Pennsylvania. He spoke to a divided nation, reminding them four score, seven years ago, right? A nation conceived in liberty and giving them hope for a new birth and freedom. Or I think of Martin Luther King's enduring speech, I Have a Dream, where in just a few minutes, he challenged and woke up the conscience of an entire nation to the horrors of racism in Jim Crow South. Or we can think of FDR, Pearl Harbor speech, the day that shall live in infamy, right? Where he challenged the U.S. to enter World War II. Or Winston Churchill. You could pick a lot from that guy. But I think of their finest hour, where he powerfully provoked the British nation to stand up to the Nazi challenge. All four of those speeches, and I'm sure we can name many others. There might be others in your mind. But they all share in common this idea that, that, that they were speaking to different audiences, different times, different purposes, but they all were meant to provoke a people to realize a mission far bigger than just themselves. 
And as much as all of these speeches are timeless, and they left us all just in awe, the words we're about to read today can't even, those speeches can't even compare to what we're going to read today. The speeches that I just mentioned, they will endure for centuries. But what we're about to read has already endured for millennia. The speeches we're, we just talked about have impacted nations. But what we're about to look at has already impacted the whole world. And it's still moving 2,000 years later. And in fact, what we're about to read is so important that we've decided it's worth plastering on the back of our sanctuary. <laughs> These words, this great commission of Jesus. So I want us to read this, but I want us to read it with fresh eyes. Whether you grew up in church or whether you didn't, I want you to look at this again with a new set of eyes. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 is where we are. You can find it in your Bible. You can follow us on the screen. But as we read this, this is the very end of Matthew's account. And Jesus is standing there in his fully resurrected body on a mountain in the hills of Galilee somewhere. And he's giving a charge to his 11 disciples who are standing there with him. So let's read it together. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. I'll read it out loud while you guys follow. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, or came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Will you guys pray with me before we jump in? You don't have to repeat after me. Let me just lead us. God, I pray that this would not just be words on a page for us today. No matter how many times you might have seen the, back, the words in the back wall back there, God, I pray that whatever we might know about them, that they would become a living reality in our lives. And that your word would challenge us as well as show us the grace of God. That you would affirm your love for us, but also call us to see outside of ourselves. Thank you for the ways that your work among us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So with that said... There are some people who naturally capture our attention more than others. It's a good idea to listen to your doctor, right? Someone who has a PhD or someone who has decades of experience, their words tend to carry weight. Big leaders, presidents, CEOs, whenever they speak, whether you agree with it or not, people tend to listen. Culture shifters, like celebrities, New York Times bestsellers, whenever they talk, well, we tend to perk up. But as much as all of these roles and titles and accomplishments may deserve our attention, when the world's first and only resurrected man speaks, it's worth listening. <laughs> and here is Jesus. The nail holes are clearly in his hands. And as he stands on this hill, this mountain in Galilee with his 11 disciples there. And what's interesting about all of this is that whenever you see in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus standing on a mountain, it means that whatever he's about to say is big. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. 
The mountain of transfiguration, Matthew 17, and now. Each time, whatever he says is going to be pretty big. But I can imagine if you put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, they're pretty confused as well as in awe. They're overjoyed, but they have a ton of questions. Because they just witnessed not long before the inhumane death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans. And now they're seeing his fully resurrected body in front of them. Would that not leave you with a lot of questions? I think it would any of us. And so they're there trying to make sense of all of this. This is no ordinary man, but their impulse, it says, is to worship him. But as Jewish men, they were taught from diapers that you don't worship anybody but God alone. Unlike the Greeks and the Romans, they're monotheists, meaning they worship one God. Can they, can they let themselves worship this, this man in front of them? But yet they could not deny the reality of who stood right in front of them, could they? And so with that, I'd like to imagine in my mind just this dialogue that the disciples are having. As their minds are racing, trying to piece together all of the the experiences they had with Jesus and the stories that they've heard. And I can imagine disciple number one was like, hey, this resurrection can only be an act of God. I mean, we saw him heal people, deliver people of evil spirits. We saw him command the winds and the waves. And we thought that was pretty impressive. I'm sorry, resurrection takes the cake. That has to be God. Plus, we remember he he was called Emmanuel, God with us. Could it be that this is our God? And then number two, God. I was like, well, I remember the whole death and resurrection thing wasn't a mistake. In fact, Jesus told us not once, not twice, but three times on the way to Jerusalem that he was going to die in Jerusalem at the hands of the scribes and rise again on the third day. That's what he told us was going to happen. But why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? And then disciple number three says, well, if you guys remember, he he talked a ton about how, how heaven had come. The kingdom of heaven had come to do something new on earth. Jesus' first preached words was turn away from the things of this world because the kingdom of heaven is here. And if you remember, he taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something new is happening here through Jesus. Something that maybe we didn't anticipate. We thought this whole time that when he was preaching, he had a political manifesto. And then he was starting to bring a military revolution. But then he started teaching about loving our enemies. What in the world is that about? You guys can imagine the confusion, right? And as they start to put these pieces together before this resurrected king, they realize God had come to earth through Jesus for revolution. But it was greater than anyone could have ever dreamed. Jesus' revolution was not waged against human powers or governments. But against the powers of death and evil over the whole world. It was a revolution that he fought personally with his own life. And with his own resurrection. He knew that from the moment that we chose our own selfish impulses and pride over the the design of our creator, that at that moment, 
sin and evil and their powers. They imprisoned every human heart and soul. The Apostle Paul says that we were spiritually dead in our own trespasses and sin. While we were created to know God, to love God, the rebellion, our own rebellion, allowed the powers of sin, death, and shame to become our prison guards. And now, (laughs) now the Son of God, having gone down into that prison himself, robbed it of its power, came back out in order to show the world that there's a new way. And now he proclaims to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is rightfully mine. As the famous theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, he said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Think about that. And when we wrestle with that, the question remains... Will we recognize and worship him personally, not as just the God over the heavens and over the whole earth, but over our whole lives? At its core, to worship, which we talk a lot about, is to simply recognize the the universal and eternal worth of Jesus. We might Express it in a large variety of ways, from singing to confessing sin, to to studying God's word, to caring for other people, uh, to coming here. Like There's a plethora of ways we can express that worship. But at its core, to worship, as the disciples did, is a joyful acceptance and celebration of who our resurrected Lord is. That in his death, he has forgiven me of my crimes against God and made peace between me and him. That in his resurrection, he came and unlocked our own prison and invites us out if we would just follow him and never turn back. What other religion, ideology, can possibly claim that its God or prophet loved us so much that he would become one of us, give his life for us, and then forgive us of our sin and promise to never leave us? And what response can we possibly have to that Lord but to worship him with everything we are? And the reason why my first real statement in this whole made-for-mission thing is talking about worship is because, hear this, worship must always precede mission. Worship naturally motivates our God-given mission. If you remember in Isaiah 6, it was only after the prophet Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple that he said, here am I, send me. That ultimately our choice to step out in our purpose is first a response to how good our God is. Until we recognize who he is, we're not going to be able to find out what we're made for. 
And when we gaze in the glory of our God in Jesus, that's when we have the ability to see beyond our own lives, our own problems, our own preferences and agendas to actually see how it is that God himself has made us. And so I want to encourage us, before, as we start into this series, before we start praying, God, show me my purpose, and we're going to get there, start praying, God, show me who you are. Because only after we understand who the one is that we're called to worship can we find what we're made for. And so my question is, do you know him? Have you personally given your heart, your life to him? Have you followed him out of that own prison of sin, given up attempts to try to earn your own worth on your own, your own value, your own salvation, whatever it might be, in order to just receive what it is he's done for you? If you haven't, I want to give us an opportunity to do that in a bit. But when we rightfully recognize who Jesus is, when we learn to celebrate and enjoy all that he is and all that he has done and his rightful authority over us, what starts to happen? When we worship Jesus as as our highest authority, we naturally start to become like him. All right, you tracking with me, guys? I know the Patriots game was late last night. You tracking with me? Central to this whole Great Commission is this word disciples. Now, disciples is a very churchy word. <laughs> it's a word that, chances are, if you haven't grown up in church or if you haven't hung out with a bunch of first century rabbis, you probably don't know this word. It's not a very familiar word to you. But in essence, a disciple, it's, it's key that we understand this. In the first century, rabbis or, or experts in the Jewish scriptures had a, a several students, apprentices, they would call disciples, whose job was not to sit in the classroom with a desk and just take in information and pass a test. Right? Their job was to try to emulate everything their rabbi did, how he thought, what he cared about, what he knew. They wanted to know it, to live it all. It was their job to emulate him entirely. And so to worship Jesus over everything is to also give him authority over every part of our lives. That's a disciple. A disciple, actually, sometimes we get weird about this word. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. A Christian is, just basically means a little Christ, which is the end goal of any disciple. To become completely and totally like Jesus. Hopefully I don't have to say this, but when we talk about becoming like Jesus, we're not talking about now you need to speak in parables and grow a beard or wear whatever you think Jesus wore, right? Of course not. But ultimately it means that the same character of Jesus is lived out in us. As one pastor put it to me, he said, being a disciple of Jesus means that I am learning to live However Jesus would live if he lived my life. How would Jesus love my family? How would Jesus care about my clients and coworkers? How would Jesus have me treat my finances? How would he have me treat my physical body? How would he have me uh, use my time, treat those different from me? How does Jesus in, in, inform my philosophies, my politics, my lifestyle, right? It's all that I am. Fundamentally, 
Being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a disciple, is to, as Paul says, take off your old self with all of its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator, its God, Jesus himself. If everything in the universe is under his direction, then we better believe he holds the right to direct every part of our lives. But within that, that's one reason why within this call to discipleship, Jesus describes it. He says it's important that you are baptized. Because what is baptism? It's a symbol that you go all in to the waters and come back out. It's a sign that you are all in. You're not leaving certain parts of yourself out. Every part of you is now becoming like Jesus. Now, that said, sometimes our culture, we cringe whenever anyone says that we, could become, we should become completely like anybody. In our culture, our me-centered society, hyper-individualistic world, we're taught that if you want to really find out who you are, you need to look internally, not externally. Don't give yourself completely up to anyone or anything. That's a basic denial of your dignity and self-respect. And you know what? I would agree with you if that was for anybody other than Jesus. Because it is in the person of Jesus that we find the one who gave himself up to rescue us. We find who we are by finding who we are in him. That ultimately self-discovery begins with surrender to who God made us to be. Sometimes we fall into this trap of believing that I need unlimited freedom and control of my own life in order to find out who I am. But that's not what Jesus taught. He said, as you surrender your own self to me as a servant, I'm going to show you what I made you to be. Our happiness is not found in our freedom to choose whatever we want. It's found in our ability to discover who we were made to be. You guys tracking with me? And yes, the more that we start to become like Jesus in total, the more we start to, whether we like it or not, stand out. The more we leave behind our allegiance to this world and begin to look like Jesus the less we're starting to look like everybody else who may not be following him. And sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. We like this Jesus thing until all of a sudden we start feeling different from everybody else and we want to retreat back to to conformity, to just being as everybody else. But I'm going to say right now, unless we are different, there is no mission. Jesus said, the way people will know that you follow me is the way that you love them. The way that you model that love of Jesus, that's how the world will know. The more that his love informs our lifestyle and every part of our lives, that's when the world will begin to know. And if our lives aren't starting to look like him, both individually and as a community, we have nothing to say to this world. We have no mission anymore. But the more that the world sees Jesus in us, the more we can invite them to know him too. And thus we get to that famous part of Jesus' commission. 
in verse 19. This earth-changing command where he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, or people groups, both those alike like us and those not like us. But how? Well, he says baptizing or marking them as those who belong to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, how else? Teaching them, he says, to obey everything I have commanded you. So do you see it? Therefore, we, if we are followers, disciples of Jesus, becoming like him, we are a community who aren't just becoming like him, but we're also called to do what he did and lead others, invite others to know him too. In fact, I could say that church, if you want to boil down the definition of this whole thing we do called church together, it is as simple as disciples making disciples. Those becoming like Jesus in joyful worship and then sharing that with a world that does not know him. But with that said, let me clarify briefly what it means and what it doesn't mean to make disciples. Because this is important. There's a lot of misconceptions. Number one, making disciples. Jesus is not saying we we make disciples of ourselves but him. Some of you are like, well, duh. But do you know how many times we've seen strong leaders, charismatic personalities, uh, use ministry intentionally or unintentionally to make little versions of themselves? Or how many times I've seen uh, people say, you know what, I'm, I, I like this one teacher. I'm just going to listen to this person. I'm going to tune out everybody else. And they end up becoming a clone of this one individual. That ultimately, we are trying to put a stand-in in the plate. We are either being a stand-in or creating someone else as a stand-in for Jesus. But our job as making disciples is to lead them to him and show them how to get to know him for themselves. You guys with me on that? All right. Second, making disciples is a process, not a one-time event. It's easy for churches, we're absolutely susceptible and guilty here at times, of of thinking, hey, we're going to have a big event, and we're going to invite people to know Jesus, and then we count the number of people who showed up and the number of people who made decisions for Jesus, and that will tell us whether we're fulfilling the Great Commission or not. Well, that tells you something, because when someone becomes, starts following Jesus, that's just the beginning, though. That's not the end of the Great Commission, And ultimately, making disciples is a relational process. One we do is we walk alongside people, learning with them, teaching at times, if we have been following a bit longer than them. But ultimately, making disciples is a lifelong thing that we do together with one another. Third, making disciples isn't just for one person to do, it's for the whole church. It's not something for the (laughs) super-Christians. There's no such thing. But it's something that every one of us who follow Jesus are a part of. Now, we all have different roles in that, sure. Paul even talked about, and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks, how Jesus is the head and we are like the body. Each of us have different parts, working, doing different things, but ultimately we're working together for the same purpose and we're growing together. And so how do, we'll talk about how to discover our each, each of our unique fits in the coming week. But until everyone everywhere becomes like Jesus in every way, 
our mission still stands. But we're never alone in it. And that's exactly how Jesus closes. These life-changing, world-changing words, he ends with, I will always be with you until the very end of the age. Next week, we're going to talk more about what that means, that he's with us. But first, I want to issue just one challenge to us before we close out. One challenge. As a church, we talk a lot about how we want to be rooted in Jesus, growing together, serving our community, much this image of a tree. And the more we grow into Jesus, root ourselves within him, we become like him. We start caring about the things that he, he cares about. And then we start to grow up and discover what our purpose is. And so follow the image of the tree. Guess what? That tree's not growing if it's not rooted. If the roots aren't there, what happens to the tree? We all know it topples. And I just want to say I, I've experienced that in my own life. It is so easy to get caught up in what's my mission? What's my purpose? What do I need to do? What tasks do I need to accomplish? Sometimes the work of ministry starts detracting from our own heart and soul connection to the God who loves us and gave himself for us. And I'll confess to you guys, looking back on 2019, I can see many areas in my own life where I chose to do the work of ministry instead of connecting with Jesus. And it leaves me cranky, <laughs> irritable, anxious, and not a whole lot of love coming out of me. <laughs> I don't want to see any of us fall into that. And so before we even talk about mission, I just want to ask you, are you personally growing? Are your roots growing? For some of you, you know exactly what that means and how to grow. It's just life and the busyness of things have gotten in the way. For others of you, you may have no clue what that means. And I would encourage you, if at the beginning here of 2020... Possibly the most important thing that any of us can do is to begin to dig in and begin to grow ourselves. I encourage you, start with the Gospel of Matthew. We just read the end of it, start at the beginning. Read one chapter or half a chapter at a time, and as you do, pray and say, God, show me who Jesus really was. Write it down. And then as you see certain characteristics of who he is, say, God, show me how I can live that out in my own life. And then maybe get into a group of other people. We're not meant to grow alone. Get into a group of other people who are asking some similar questions of how do we grow together. In women's Bible studies, there's sign-ups right out there. They're starting soon. Sign up for one of those if you are a woman. <laughs> We have a whole list of small groups. If you download our church app, I thought it's like it's always in my pocket. Um, if you download our church app, there's a whole list of small groups. If you type on connect and then ministries and then small groups, there's a whole list of our small groups. And you can even sign up right on the app for, the, for one of those. Check out one of those. Or if there's somebody in here that you know has a like mind, just ask them, hey, can we meet up and talk through the word of God together? What is more important than being rooted? Mission, all that doesn't even really matter unless we are growing into who Jesus is. Amen? And until everyone in every way is becoming like Jesus, our, still, our mission still stands. 
but he's always with us. And last, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never actually made that conscious choice to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin, and handed him the keys to your life, you can do that. And I actually want to lead you to do that right now. No one's going to grab you out of your seat, yank you down the aisle, or make you do anything you don't want to do. But I just simply want to invite you to just pray these words with me that I want to pray in a moment. Again, this is for those who have never actually committed their life to Jesus and want to do that today. Will you just bow your head and just close your eyes and and just pray these words. You don't have to pray them out loud. You can pray them to yourself, but just pray these words with me. Say, Jesus, I recognize that you are Lord of all the heavens and the earth and over my whole life. Forgive me for the ways I've sinned against you. I've chosen my way over your way. Now I give the keys to my life to you. Show me how to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, this is just the beginning of the greatest journey of your life of getting to know who God is and actually becoming like him. And we want to help you do that. And if you did that, I would encourage you to take that connect card that's in the pew back in front of you. Just fill it out, put your name, put your email address, and just say, hey, I gave my life to Jesus today, or something at the bottom. And then you can hand it to me. You can put it in that box that's out by the sound booth in the back as you leave today. Or just come talk to me. I want to make it easy for you. But overall... Now we as a church, as one big family, those who are followers of Jesus, we get to come to this table called communion together, or the Eucharist or the Lord's table. This is where we all (laughs) come and eat and share in a moment just to reflect on what it is that God has done for us. And so will you pray with me as we prepare to take this? God... I pray that you will meet us right where we are. That we as a church, each of us individually will own that you are Lord over our lives. And if there are areas in our own lives, God, where we recognize we have not been following you or we've been trying to control ourselves, God, I pray that we will loosen our grip and trust because we know the measure of your love for us. And we know that your way is always better. Thank you for dying for us, for giving your life for us. And I pray that as we take your body and your blood, may each of these things nourish us. And may your grace wash away all shame and guilt. Thank you for calling us your own. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said.